Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Matthew 11, 1 through 19. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to his 12 disciples, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. As these men were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? See, those who wear soft clothes are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. But the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence, and the violent have been seizing it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Let anyone who has ears listen. To what should I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to other children. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. God. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Let's exchange greetings this morning. Good morning. Thank you, Luke, for reading that. Thank you, Tori and Lindsay and Grace, for leading us in worship through song. If you haven't already, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 11. We are going to dive right in because we've got a lot of verses to get through. Um... So before we do, though, I just want to continue. We want to give everything to the Lord uh, this new year and this hour that we're together. So let's just continue this posture of worship and prayer. Our Father, we are grateful that you brought us here. I pray now, Lord, that you would just give us a spirit of joy. You would give us a spirit of love and of peace. I ask, Father, that as we look at your word, you would open our eyes and that we would have ears that hear and eyes that see, and hearts that believe. We pray all these things in your Son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. 
We are continuing our series in Matthew. First of all, Happy New Year. Hope you guys have a great first seven days of January. We're continuing our series in Matthew. We are starting movement three of Matthew. If you've been with us for some time, you know that for over a year, for actually a year exactly now, we've been in Matthew. And Matthew is divided up very systematically and carefully into five different movements, five different sections we're calling them movements, just like the five books of the Pentateuch, just like the five books of the Psalms. Matthew's Jesus is the law and the prophets who's bringing the kingdom of heaven here to earth. And so here's actually a graphic uh, of the five different movements with the chapter numbers underneath them. So last year at this time, we started movement one, which the little icon, you know, is mountains because it ended with, oh, by the way, each of the five movements ends with a really significant teaching of Jesus. So Matthew has designed this, five different movements. Each movement ends with the teaching of Jesus. The first movement was chapters one through seven, and it ended with the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the opening of movement one it's kind of like how in a symphony, you know, you hear like a melody and then throughout the symphony that melody is repeated and it's like twisted and it's like, you know, or like in a movie, like a really well done movie, you're getting like hints of themes and motifs in the beginning couple scenes. What Matthew's doing in movement one is he's doing that. I mean, we have, we have Emmanuel, God with us, right? What's, what's the gospel of Matthew all about? The kingdom of heaven is here. God is here with us. You have all these reactions to Jesus. King Herod, he was like, let's kill all the people to and under because I'm, I'm threatened by this king. And what do we see eventually as we move on to Matthew? We all these, see all these reactions to Jesus. But movement one ends with the, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the magnum opus of Jesus' teaching. I mean, if, if, if you had to start, if you could only read one thing for the rest of this year from the Bible, which would be a bummer because all the Bible is great. But if you could only read one thing for the rest of the year, I'd be like, Sermon on the Mount. Just, just start there live in that because what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's showing, he's telling us what the kingdom of heaven is like. And it is absolutely backwards from what we would say. He starts by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. And oftentimes I wanna say, blessed are those who try hard, work hard, are rich and powerful and successful. So it's just completely backwards. So he, this magnum opus of, of the Sermon on the Mount and what he says in it is that the kingdom of heaven has come near it's come near. That's what John the Baptist says in Matthew chapter three. That's what Jesus himself says in Matthew chapter four. They say, repent, turn around. God's rule, God's reign, God's kingdom is here. And Jesus is the one that's starting it. That's Matthew movement one. Movement two was last fall. We took our time working through chapter eight, nine, and 10 of movement two. And I like to call it the miracle blitz. Like as soon as Jesus gets off the Sermon on the Mount, which is more like a hill, by the way. Don't think like Mount Everest or something. Like he wasn't wasn't that big, it was more like a Sermon on the Hill. Anyway, he gets down off the hill and immediately he just starts doing all these miracles. First miracle, a man with leprosy comes up to him. Says, if you are willing, you are able to make me clean. And Jesus isn't repulsed. He doesn't say, you're unclean, you're sinful, you probably got there on your own. He says, he enters into this man's pain and sickness and vulnerability and says, I am willing, be made clean and just over and over and over again. Jesus is entering into people's pain. He's entering into their sin. He's entering into their failed choices. He's entering into their sickness. And he's saying, I'm not threatened or offended by that. In fact, I'm gonna take that for you. It's beautiful, it really is. And then Matthew chapter 10, the end of movement two, is what's called the missional discourse. This is what we did back in like November. Yeah, I think it was November we did this. 
so long ago, uh, last year even. <laughs> um, sorry, I had to make one like last year joke. No? No, just me? Okay. Awesome. Thanks, guys. No, he, he, he ends movement two with the missional discourse, and what Jesus does is he brings his 12 disciples. So the Sermon on the Mount was to a bunch of people. Missional discourse at the end of movement two is just the 12 disciples, and he basically says this, you've seen what I've been doing, now go and do it. You've seen me do the teaching and the preaching and the healing, now I want you 12 to go out and do the teaching and the preaching and the healing. And he talks about the responses that they're gonna get. <laughs> then finally, we're in movement three. Today we are starting movement three, which as you can tell is the middle of the five movements, because three is in the middle. And it's also the middle of Matthew as well, them thematically. And it's, it's a very significant, it's short, it's one of the shortest movements, but it's really, really significant, chapters 11, 12, and 13, because this is the hinge of the book. This is where people will start, will, will start, Matthew will turn up the volume on people's responses to Jesus. Up until this point, there's been a few people who like don't like Jesus, but for the most part, people are flocking to him. At this movement, there's a big transition where all of a sudden he's starting to get a lot more opposition. And people aren't just confused by him, people are actually threatened by him, start to plot to kill him, they don't like what he's saying, and in fact, he says confusing things in parables, which that's chapter 13. Chapter 13 is the parable discourse. He says confusing things in parables so that people will be confused and not follow him. That's Matthew movement three. Ultimately, and especially today, what this movement is about is people's expectations of Jesus. What do people expect of Jesus? What do people expect of the Messiah? And this section, like I said, it gets to people's expectations. Who, who is this Messiah figure who's going to bring in God's kingdom? And what's interesting about this movement too is that nine times out of 10, Jesus does not meet people's expectations. They had a specific set of expectations. This is who the Messiah is gonna be. This is who the Christ is gonna be. This is what it's gonna look like to bring the kingdom of heaven here. And Jesus, for the most part, he doesn't meet those expectations at all. And people are, are confused, like, okay, Jesus, I thought you were gonna be doing this, but you're not. I thought you would do this in my life, but you're, you're not doing it. And then, as I said, chapter 13 is the third teaching. It's in parables. We're gonna be getting into that in March, right before Easter, and it is... I mean, leave it to Jesus to be more confusing than less confusing. Sometimes I think he would, he would fail a communications or a homiletics class because some of the answers that he has are just non-answers or questions or like riddles that he wants you to go think about. And it's like, can you just give me a straight answer, Jesus? Like, yes or no? And, and he just doesn't do that. And he says, if you have ears to hear, then you'll hear this. And if you have eyes to see, then you'll see this. And if not, then not. And guess what? Jesus talks the entire time in Matthew chapter 13 about the kingdom of heaven. I hope that by now, after a year, if you've been here for, with us for a while, that you, if somebody were to ask you, you know, because this is definitely going to happen, if somebody were to ask you, hey, what's the theme of the gospel according to Matthew? You know, what you talk about on a Friday night. Somebody asks you, what's the theme of the gospel according to Matthew? You'd be able to say, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is here. Jesus is the one bringing God's rule, God's reign into earth, and that is good news. Why? Because God doesn't leave you in your sin. He doesn't leave you in your brokenness. He doesn't leave you in your sickness. 
He doesn't leave you in your broken relationships, in your unmet expectations. He doesn't leave you there. He doesn't say, you're on your own. You made these decisions on your own, so now you have to live with the consequences. The gospel, the gospel is that God looks at you in love and he looks at the ways that you have participated in sin, he looks at the ways that you have had sin effect on you that you didn't want, he looks at the ways that you've, made, you've done sin to other people and he says, I want to save you from that. And I'm gonna do that by actually absorbing all of the evil onto myself and giving you the life of freedom and love and forgiveness that only he can give. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's the theme of Matthew. That's what the gospel is. It's good news. You're not alone. You're not. Jesus is looking at you right now in this moment, and the Holy Spirit's prodding you. I know he is. He's prodding you. And he's gently whispering, waiting for you to hear his voice. So that we can say, Jesus, I don't know. Sometimes I have way too high expectations of you. Sometimes I don't have any expectations of you at all. But Jesus, I know that you love me. And I know that you care for me. So whatever this life looks like, I want to, I want to wrestle with this. I want to walk with you. I want to fail with you. I want to seek you. I want to come back to seeking you after I've sought other things. So if somebody asks what the theme of the gospel according to Matthew is, we can say the kingdom of heaven has come near. And if somebody asks what is the gospel, you can say the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the good news, that God loves us so much that he sent his son Jesus for us to show us the way because he is the way, the truth, and the life. So that's the sermon for today. Just kidding. That's the intro. So movement three chapter ele- begins in chapter 11. Let's dive right in. Again, if you have your Bibles I hope you're in Matthew, you'll meet me in Matthew chapter 11, and we'll just walk through this text uh, verse by verse. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1 says this. When Jesus had finished giving instruction to his 12 disciples, again, that's Matthew chapter 10, the missional discourse, he moved on from there to teach and preach in their towns. Just a little geographical note, he is in Galilee, which is north of Jerusalem. It's really the middle of nowhere. It's kind of like rural towns and villages. So he just brought his disciples to him. He taught them. He sent them out. Now he himself is going to teach and preach in their towns. Verse 2, chapter 11. Now, when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples. Excuse me, let's pause right here. We'll find out in chapter 14 why John the Baptist was in prison. By the way, this is John the Baptizer, the John the Baptist. It's not John the Disciple. Uh, we'll find out in chapter 14 why he was in prison, but let's wait to a- answer and ask that question. Instead, let's look at what John the Baptist asked Jesus. But this is, by the way, this is John the Baptist, the one who, when uh, he went out into the wilderness and he started you know, eating locusts and wild honey and like weird stuff, this is the one who wore camel skin and he proclaimed the great and terrible day of the Lord. Matthew chapter three, if you want a refresher, we don't have time to get there today. But Matthew chapter three was John the Baptist's message, and he says, the ax is at the root of the tree. If you don't repent, you'll be cut down, you'll be thrown into the unquenchable fire. The, the, the day of the Lord is here. 
And he, started, he was baptizing a bunch of people. He says, I baptize you in water for repentance. One who's coming after me, the coming one, the anointed one, the Messiah, is going to baptize you in Holy Spirit and the fire. That's this, this John the Baptist. He's in prison. And I want to highlight two words here in verse two. Look what he says. When John the Baptist heard in prison what the Christ was doing. Other translations might say the Messiah was doing. It's the same word, Christ, Messiah, same, same title. What struck me about that is I, I asked myself, why didn't he say just Jesus? Why did he specifically say the Christ or the Messiah? And the reason is, is we're gonna get there in a second, but the reason is is that the Christ and the Messiah, another name for that, another word for that, it means anointed one or the coming one. And it's intentionally brought to light here because there, was, there were very clear expectations about what the anointed one, what the Christ, what the Messiah was going to do. What was this Christ figure, what was this Messiah figure going to do? And it says that the Christ was doing, so he sent a message through his disciples. Now, let's go on to verse 13. What did John the Baptist say? And the disciples went to, John the Baptist's disciples went to Jesus and asked him, are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect somebody else? Whoa, whoa, whoa. John the Baptist is doubting? What, what is, this is John the Baptist we're speaking about. And he just asked, am I back in the wrong horse? This is John the Baptist who is Jesus' cousin. This is the one who, you know, leapt in the womb of his mother when Mary and Jesus in utero walked into the room. John the Baptist started leaping in his mother's womb. And now he's doubting, saying, are you sure you're the right guy? This is John the Baptist who in his mid-20s or so, he left and went out to the middle of nowhere and started eating bugs. Because he's like, I, I have a very clear vision and calling from the Lord that I am the prophet that was prophesied about and I am going to be the Elijah who is to come to bring about the day of the Lord. This Elijah is now doubting. This is the Elijah who, who, who baptized thousands of people in the Jordan River. They came from Jerusalem, from Judea, from Galilee, all over, and he's baptizing them. And he's saying the day of the Lord is coming. Repent and believe. Now he's doubting. This is John the Baptist, by the way, who in the Gospel of John, when he sees Jesus, says what? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's doubting? This is the one who said, I'm not worthy to bend down and untie the shoes of Jesus. This is the one who looked at Jesus, in, grabbed Jesus in his hands, baptized him, saw the heavens rip open, whatever that would have looked like, saw the Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove, landed on Jesus, and heard a voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist saw that, and he heard that, and now he's saying, Jesus, are you sure you're the right guy? Interesting. Why would John the Baptist ask that? What's going on? Before we answer that question, we have to talk about doubt. We have to talk about doubt. Because the enemy is really good at sowing this lie in our hearts and in our minds. And the lie is this, that the opposite of faith is doubt. That is not true. The lie is that if you doubt at all, you don't have a strong faith and you're not a good Christian. That is not true. The opposite of faith is not doubt. 
The opposite of faith is actually certainty and control. Because if you live a life of 100% certainty and 100% control, you therefore are living by sight, not living by faith. Doubt is actually necessary for faith. Now there's a sense of doubt that you could say like, well, well, what about the doubt when somebody says, I don't know about if I believe in God, so I'm just gonna throw everything away. That's not doubt, that's unbelief. Doubt, it, look, look at what John asks. He asks a question. He doesn't say, Jesus, I had all these expectations about you and my belief in God and you didn't meet them, so I'm throwing everything out. He said, Jesus, what's going on? Because I'm confused. Faithful doubt is a doubt, it's the doubt of Job, it's the doubt of John the Baptist, it's the doubt that comes to God and says, God, I don't know what's going on. I'm confused, I'm frustrated. I, I know that you died for me. I know that you gave me your life, in Christ, but other than that, I have no idea. Because that doubt invites you to wrestle with God. And guys, I just, I just need to say this, God is big enough for your doubts and your questions. He is. He's absolutely big enough for your doubts and your questions. In fact, I'm more suspicious of people who think they have God all figured out in this like perfect little box and they read the Bible as, it's, as if it's a textbook and they treat God as if he's some subject to be mastered. God is a person to know and to love and to walk with. And I, I, lo I love it. I love it when people say, I don't know, but I just know that I think I'm going the right way but I think sometimes it's two steps forward, sometimes it's five steps back. Sometimes I'm confused. I thought Jesus was gonna do this in my life and he didn't. That's good, faithful doubt. There was one time in my life where um, I, I don't know, how, I really don't have words for it. I've been thinking about it for years. I don't have words for it other than it was a moment I, I saw, I knew God was with me. And it wasn't when I got an A on a theology exam. And it wasn't when I had just preached a great sermon. You know when it was? When I was face down in the carpet. And I was, I was screaming. And I was mad. And I was frustrated and I was confused but I was, I was screaming it to God. And that moment, there was a before and after. That moment was a before and after. And after that moment, I don't know, God didn't answer any of my questions, by the way. Not a single one of them was answered. But you know what, you know what I did know beyond a shadow of a doubt in that moment? God was with me. And if a theology professor would have heard the words that I was saying, I would have failed a theology exam, right? Faithful doubt brings your frustrations to God. It brings your questions to God's people to say, hey, are we sure about this? Hey, I'm frustrated and confused. Can you help me? Because sometimes we need each other's faith to carry us when we don't have strength to go on our own. Sometimes we need each other's prayers to go with us, and John the Baptist is doing what? He's sitting in prison, which by the way was a death sentence in the first century, because if you didn't have people bring you food and clothes, you would just rot away or starve to death. He's sitting in prison, and his message was this, the one is coming who is going to defeat the enemy. 
and he's going to usher in the kingdom of heaven. So let's think about John's question. He says, he says Jesus, are you the one who is to come, which that, by the way, is a title. It's hard to see in the English. It's a title for the Messiah, the Christ, the coming one. Or should we expect somebody else? Why would John the Baptist ask this? John, in the first century, along with all of his disciples, along with a lot of people, had this very clear expectation of what it was gonna look like when God's kingdom came. You remember Genesis 3, where the first uh, uh, glimpse of a Messiah, of a Savior was coming, where, where uh, um, God speaks to the woman, and he says, uh, your no, sorry, he speaks to the serpent, sorry, that's right. He speaks to the serpent and he says, there will be one who's coming after you. Your seed is going to crush the seed of the serpent. So there's gonna be a person that's going to defeat evil once and for all. There are two Psalms in particular, which if you did the bread reading this week, we read Psalm 110 three times this week. Love that Psalm. That Psalm specifically was a, what's, what is what's called a messianic Psalm. It's a Psalm about the Messiah. And Psalm two as well. And there was this very clear expectation that the Messiah was going to crush the bad guys. He was going to destroy the king, all the kings of the earth, all the emperors, all the, all the guys who, 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 who lift themselves up on injustice and oppression, they're gonna be done away with. This Messiah figure, he's gonna come and he's gonna rid the world of evil once and for all. And when he, do it, when he does it, it's gonna be ugly. Those who, are, those who fear the Lord, they're in. Those who, who play the game, they're out. And so there's this expectation that the Messiah is going to overthrow the evil powers of the day. And who are the evil powers of John the Baptist's day? The Roman Empire, right? Israel is currently under the Roman Empire, and so a lot of people assumed that the Messiah was gonna go to Jerusalem, throw off the Romans and all the bad guys, and set up God's kingdom there. Because if you think about it, when two kingdoms come to head, what happens? The swords come out, the guns come out. Which kingdom is stronger? And what has Jesus been doing up until this point, what has he been doing? He's been walking around little tiny towns in the middle of nowhere. He's been in the sticks, honestly. He's been in these rural villages, and he's talking to the nobodies. There's, like, there's a leper that comes up to him, and he heals him. There's, there, there's these poor people that are following him, and he, he loves them. There's tax collectors who are, who are kind of like the power brokers. They're... they're they're aligned with the political powers of the day, and he's with them. And I can just imagine if, if you know, Jesus had a PR person. Sometimes I think this. It's like, I want to sit down with Jesus and be like, all right, Jesus, your plan is to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth, right? Right. Well, if that's your plan, then here's how we should do it. We should get you to Jerusalem as fast as possible. I can set you up with some meetings, with some power brokers, with some really powerful people, and we can actually, we can kick the Sadducees out because they're a little weird and they don't believe in the resurrection and I know you believe that. But maybe then, if we have enough power in Jerusalem, then we can, we can overrun Herod and we can kick him out of town. And by that time, though, if your kingdom is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, then no other kingdom is gonna come up against it. The Romans will hear about it. They'll probably send troops, but we'll just defeat them. And then eventually, you can get to Rome. And once you get to Rome, your kingdom, boom, it's here. And everybody will know that your kingdom is the city on a hill that will not be. That, that's how I would think. That's how we would think. We would strategize. We would play this game. Jesus, if this is your mission, then let's do this. And what's he doing? Not that. In fact, he's telling people to stop talking about him. He heals people and he's like, shh, shh don't tell anybody. So of course, if you're John the Baptist and the Messiah figure is here and you're in prison, 
if the Messiah figure does what he's supposed to do and throws off the bad guys, what will happen to you, John the Baptist? You'll be freed from prison. And what's not happening? He's not freed from prison. He's sitting there, probably really confused. Jesus, I thought you were gonna, I thought you were gonna do this, and you're not. Jesus, if, if we, I mean, we grew up together, and we were talking about this day, and this is just not at all what I expected. Are you the coming one? Or should, should I look for somebody else? Do you feel that with John the Baptist? Can you sympathize with that? Jesus, I thought my life was going to look like this, and it is not. I thought by now that this thorn in my side would be gone, and it's not. Jesus, I actually thought that by following you, my life was going to get easier, and it actually has gotten harder. I thought these relationships would be mended by now. They're not. I thought my circumstances would change, and they haven't. I thought you would heal that person. I thought you would save that person. I thought you would give me a little bit more of a glimpse of your love for me. Can you relate with John the Baptist? Faithful doubt brings your questions to the Lord. And then what does Jesus say? Verse four. Jesus replied to them, being John's disciples, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the poor are told the good news. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. We don't have time right now to, to talk about this. Actually, later this week, I'll be putting up a podcast on our podcast about this specific verse and its quotes from Isaiah, and it's really, really cool. That'll be a more textual um, study, but for now, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says this, John, I am the one who is to come, and the kingdom of heaven is coming here but it is not how anybody has expected it. It is not coming in the way that you have expected it. He says, John, it's here, but it's unlike anything you've ever expected. And then verse six, when he says, blessed is the one who isn't offended by me, what he's saying is this, if you can live with that, if you can live with the fact that I'm not going to free you from prison and you can still follow me and you don't stumble over that fact, then you are blessed. If you can live with the fact that maybe you might never get out of prison, you're blessed. If you can live with the fact that your current circumstances might never change and you aren't offended and you don't stumble, you're blessed. If you can say with Paul, I will actually boast in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may reside in me, then you are blessed. If you can live with the fact that your questions might never be answered, but you can say, he must increase and I must decrease. You are blessed. So Jesus doesn't give a straight answer. And in fact, he doesn't give the answer that John probably wanted to hear. He says, if you can live with the fact that I am doing this in a way that is so unexpected, 
That's where flourishing happens. That's where blessedness happens. And then the narrative keeps going. As these men, verse seven, as these men were leaving, these are John the Baptist's disciples, they're leaving, Jesus then turned to the crowds and speak to them about John the Baptist. And he says this, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? I love it when Jesus is sarcastic. The phrase there, reed swaying in the wind, was a, was a, a phrase used of like people who were pushovers and they would just say whatever was popular, whatever the culture wanted them to say, whatever they got paid to say, they would just say it. Like a reed swaying in the wind, they have no stability or balance. He goes, did you go out to the wilderness, which is where John the Baptist was, did you go to see a pushover? He's like, no. John is not saying things that people told him to say, clearly. If you read his speech in Matthew chapter three, it's like, yeah, you definitely, like, that's offensive. You're not gonna, you're not gonna get paid to say that. Anyway, he's not a pushover. Verse uh, uh, eight, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes, this is another sarcastic dig. It's like a, kind of like a, a wimp or like somebody who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Like, oh no, he's like, no, no. You definitely didn't see that. Somebody who's wearing camel hair and goat hair and eating bugs was not, he's not in the royal palaces. You go to the royal palaces to see people like that. In verse nine, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He's more than a prophet because he was actually prophesied about. Verse 10, this is the one about whom it is written, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. So why, why is John the Baptist more than a prophet? He's more than a prophet because he also was prophesied about. He was prophesied about and then he was the prophet. And that quote is from Malachi 3 that talks about this person who's gonna come before the kingdom of heaven comes to earth. And Jesus excuse me, is saying that that is John the Baptist. He keeps going. Verse 11, truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared, but the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This verse is a little confusing. You read it and you're like, wait, so nobody's greater than him, but you are greater than him? What, what Jesus is saying is that there, there's a scholar, N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, which is always confusing because his initials are N.T., and the New Testament initials are also N.T., so sometimes I'm like, what? Never mind. N.T. Wright, and uh, he has this illustration. It's a little cheesy, but I think it works well. It's like there are two ages that were happening. John the Baptist is the end of the one age, and Jesus is the beginning of the new age. And the illustration is, is that imagine you owned the best, finest, biggest horseback carriage riding company ever. Okay, let's just imagine that. So go back however many years it was before cars were invented. And you, that's your thing. Like you own it, it's like you got a monopoly on the horseback carriage riding thing, like it's great. Then the car is invented. The automobile is invented. You are slowly gonna get what? You're gonna, like it's gonna become non-useful. You're gonna get out of business. You're gonna do that. Basically what this is saying is it's better to be a factory worker on an assembly line of an automobile than to own the horseback drawn carriages company. That's the illustration. Little cheesy, but you get the idea? Like, th this is compl something completely new. Transportation has radically changed with the invention of the car. And it would be better to be just, you know, somebody who is there than somebody who owns this. What Jesus is saying is that John the Baptist was the one prophesying about the kingdom of heaven, and it stopped after that. And now if you're in the kingdom of heaven, if you're there, if you live in God's reality, if Jesus has bought you with the price, and if you have been transformed from the inside out, it, it, if you're least in the kingdom of heaven, you're actually greater than him because you got to see and experience the things that all of the prophets in the Old Testament 
wanted to see and experience. And that's exactly what he says. Verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Why did they prophesy until John? Law and the prophets, by the way, is the Old Testament. So think like the first three quarters of your Bible. Why did they prophesy before John? Because who came after John? Jesus, right? Jesus came after John. And what is the Old Testament all about? The Old Testament is all about Jesus, which means that all of the prophecies, all of the law, everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus. All the messages of the Old Testament are about Jesus. All the character archetypes in the Old Testament are about Jesus. All the prophecies are about Jesus, which means, little sidebar here, that therefore none of the law and the prophets are about anything else. Anything else. There is an interpret any interpretation of the Bible, specifically the Old Testament, that is used to interpret current events and predict future events removes Jesus as the fulfillment of the Bible. We do not read the Old Testament. We do not read the Bible as if it's a crystal ball looking for prophecies to be fulfilled in current events or future events. We read the Bible and we study it as the very revelation of God himself and we find one person, Jesus, period. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Everything that the Old Testament was about, it stopped at John because it all finds its yes and its amen in Jesus. Jesus is claiming here in this verse to be the fulfillment of the entire Bible, the redemption of all of history and the scriptures, and any other interpretation simply removes Jesus out of the Bible. We cannot do that. It's dangerous to think that way. Verse 13, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and then verse 14, he says, if you're willing to accept it, John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come. That's another uh, reference to Malachi chapter 4 that talks about Elijah will come before the great day of the Lord. And what Jesus is saying is that Elijah's not going to come, you know, in 2000, you know, uh, what are we, BC? AD. Sorry. Wow, that's weird. What, uh, 2000 AD. He's not going to come in like the 19, he's not going to come in the 2100s. He, he already came. Elijah already came. It was John the Baptist, which means that Jesus is the one that's bringing the kingdom of heaven here. And then he says, verse 15, do you have ears? Listen. If you know, then you know. He keeps going. Verse 16, to what should I compare this generation? This is Jesus talking. It's like children sitting in the marketplaces who called out to other children, hey, we played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament for you, but you didn't mourn. What he's saying here is that the gen this generation, they wanted Jesus and John to do things. They had expectations of what Jesus and John were going to do. And they, Jesus and John did not meet those expectations. So they do what? They call John a, a, a demon-possessed man. They say, well, John's a, a wacko. He's, he's, he's got a demon. And they say, Jesus, well, you're obviously eating and drinking, so you're a drunk and a glutton, and you're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. There are very clear expectations of what people bring, to, uh, uh, that people bring to Jesus, and he oftentimes doesn't meet them. And so the response that these people give is, well, you're, you're, you're not the guy that I was looking for. You're not the one that I was looking for. Then Jesus ends with this. At the end of verse 19, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. 
In the end, wisdom, which is personified in Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 8 and later is brought to, uh, brought to Jesus himself, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds regardless of the response of people saying, Jesus, you, you're not what I expected. You're way worse than I, what I expected. You're way different than what I expected. Regardless of the response, wisdom will be vindicated by her deeds. Where wisdom, were wisdom to be brought to a trial with the crime of not stirring Israel or yourself to faith, she would be acquitted. So I wanna, I wanna add, we've talked a lot, we covered a lot of ground. I wanna end with this question. And this is a question is, what expectations do you have of Jesus? What expectations do you have of Jesus? John the Baptist had expectations. People of Israel had expectations. The Sadducees, the Pharisees, the poor, the rich, they had expectations of Jesus. And depending on what they were, they were or were not met. So what are your expectations of Jesus? Maybe, you, you, maybe your expectations of Jesus, you're saying like, Jesus, I actually, I really expected you to do this for me and it hasn't been done yet. We need to name those expectations and bring them to Jesus and bring them to each other. Maybe you're on the other end and you're like, Jesus, I don't have any expectations of you. I, I don't have any expectations of you because I've been hurt before. Because I've prayed to you before and it hasn't been answered. So I guess my expectations are that you're not going to answer me. Bring those to Jesus. Bring those to each other in community. So we can say, we can say that wisdom will be vindicated, vindicated by her deeds. And what, what ended up happening to Jesus was not that he removed evil. He, he didn't save Israel from Rome. They were still under Roman oppression, Right? He didn't save John the Baptist from prison. John the Baptist died in prison. In fact, all the people that Jesus healed, guess what? They got sick again and they died again. So what did Jesus do? He absorbed evil. He didn't just come in and kick it in the teeth and say, yeah, we're we're doing this. He, he, He viewed evil as something far more mysterious and wicked and spiritual than you and I view evil. And the evil that he was coming to destroy was the evil of sin, Satan, death, and hell. And so instead of fixing John the Baptist's circumstances, instead of fixing all these Pharisees' expectations, he said, that's not my mission right now. My mission is to defeat evil so that I can free you to live the life that God has designed for you. So I can give you life and life abundant So the reason why I want to end with this question is what are your expectations of Jesus is because it's really important to name them. It's really important to name them. Jesus, I was expecting this from you or I didn't expect anything from you. Whatever it is, I want to take a minute and I want to sit with this question and I want to invite us into wrestling and faithful doubt. Not doubt that says I'm not going to believe at all. I'm just going to throw everything out, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Not that kind of doubt. That's unbelief. That's not real doubt. Real doubt is saying Jesus, I want you, and I want to live in the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes I don't want to, but I want to want to. 
You ever feel that? I want to want to believe in you. So God, give me the eyes to see and the ears to hear. Whatever your expectation, let's bring those to Jesus and to each other in community and find life and find freedom. I'm gonna give us just a minute to just sit with that and then I'll pray and we'll take communion together. Thanks again for listening and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at inkinigospel.com or you can find us on social media at Inkney Gospel. Thank you.